All right, and welcome back, beloved. I am so excited to begin the book of Zechariah today. There is just so much. I've been completely absorbed in this book over the last three or four weeks. I apologize if I've been a little bit quiet on my channel. I was actually away. I was in another country. uh, And while I was there, I got to really, really focus on this book. And I am just so excited to just brain dump on you guys today and share just a great overview of the book of Zechariah and hopefully introduce you to it in a way that will prepare your mind for a full verse-by-verse teaching of this book, uh, just like the series on Haggai that we did. And I highly, highly recommend you watch both our Daniel and our Haggai series before we go on to Zechariah, because the concepts build upon each other. But we'll talk about uh, more about that in the future. Now, I want to give you an outline of how I'm going to do this introduction today. First, I'm just going to describe Zechariah. Who is he? What type of prophet is he? What do we know about him? What can we learn about him? How long was his ministry, etc., right? Then I just want to discuss a few of the main themes. Jesus, right? This book is written roughly 500 years before Christ. It uh, contained within the 14 chapters of Zechariah are a myriad of prophecies of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you follow my channel, you know that's where my heart is. That's what I love to teach on as well as Israel, the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, the capital city of of the nation of Israel. I want you to understand these themes from Genesis to Revelation and just get a general overview of the Holy Land, okay? Then I'm going to provide an outline of the book. Scholars and different commentators, they separate this book into different sections. I sort of uh, didn't copy and paste, but I sort of looked at how all of they did it, and I sort of tried to uh, give you a breakdown. But there's just so much information in this book. I I didn't want to give it all away in the introduction. I just wanted to give you sort of like a coat hanger where you could hang your coat on for different sections of this book. Uh, just to start preparing your mind for a deep dive. And finally, and this is going to be on like a more personal note, so I do apologize. You don't have to watch it if you don't want to. I'm going to discuss why I'm doing the book of Zechariah now. Um, It's sort of going to be, if you're going to read the written commentary on this, it's like a dedication. Uh, There is a story in the providence of God of why I'm doing the book of Zechariah right now. It does have a little bit to do with the current war going on in Israel. I find it to be a fascinating story. I hope you will as well. It'll be on a personal note at the end of this teaching. And so with that being said, let's jump into this introduction and describe Zechariah. Now, just like many prophets in Scripture, very little is known about Zechariah. There's a great lesson there, right? We want to lift Christ up. He must increase, I must decrease. We don't need to know a ton about the preacher or the minister, right? But very little is known about Zechariah. He was the son of Edo, who was a priest. So Zechariah was in the priestly line, the Levitical line. So he was both a prophet and most likely served at a, as a priest at some point in his life. Uh, Zechariah with Haggai, he ministered right alongside Haggai. They preached the exact same time frame together. Uh, he returned from the 70-year captivity to Babylon. So that's why I recommend you watch the Haggai series first. Uh, it goes over that that Jewish captivity to Babylon in much greater detail. 
But Zechariah returned from that 70-year captivity, and he ministered right alongside Haggai. Now, if you remember from the book of Haggai, Haggai was a very short ministry. He only prophesied for about four months. And so about a a few months into Haggai's ministry, Zechariah came uh, right alongside him. They prophesied at the same time. And if you'll remember, Haggai rebuked the people for their indifference because they didn't want to build God's temple, God's house in Jerusalem, after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it. The Jewish people, they started to build it, and then they stopped. And so Haggai rebuked them for their indifference and laziness towards rebuilding the temple. Zechariah comes along just about two months into the ministry of Haggai, and he reveals the plan of God for Israel in the future. Okay, So he sort of encourages them that God has not forgotten Israel, that he still has a plan for them. He calls them to repent. He encourages them to keep building that temple. And together, both Haggai and Zechariah unfold many mysteries, Okay, many mysteries, beautiful mysteries of God that, that I love to study in Scripture concerning uh, the coming earthly millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the future of the state of Israel, the coming judgment of all the nations, and the second coming of Christ. Now, once again, I'm just going to reiterate and and pull up on my website, foolishministries.com. I highly recommend, if you don't watch the Daniel series, at least watch the Haggai series. It's uh, six to eight videos, depending on if you watch these videos where I broke down what the temple is, the temples of the past and the temples of the future, like the millennial temple of Christ. And many Christians might not know what exactly was the temple meant to represent in the Old Testament. And so I wrote a full commentary on the book of Haggai and did an eight-part series that's meant to get you up to speed. So I highly recommend you watch the, the Haggai series, but I'll continue on, okay? So more about Zechariah now. The name Zechariah essentially means Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. It's a very fitting name, and you could sort of consider Zechariah's name like a general theme for the entire book. God has not forgotten the nation of Israel. Remember, Israel is impoverished, they're broke, they're discouraged, and they're under Gentile rule. There's no more king in Israel. There's no King David. There's no King Solomon. Zerubbabel's the governor, but these are the times of the Gentiles. And so for the genuinely Uh, Jewish people, not just by circumcision of the flesh, but Jewish people by circumcision of the heart, the, the genuine children of God in the nation of Israel at this time, they probably uh, were wondering if God had forgotten them. And so a major theme of the book of Zechariah is Yahweh remembers. Uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 1, verse 13 Uh, the Lord begins to unfold a series of visions concerning the nation of Israel. And the angel who is interpreting this message to Zechariah asks the Lord about Israel, and the Lord responds with good words, comforting words. The book of Zechariah is meant to comfort the children of God who are part of the nation of Israel. It's also meant to be very instructive to the church. It's a great evangelistic book. It's just fantastic. Um, Isaiah 44, speaking of the fact that God will not forget the nation of Israel, says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
and Israel, for you're my servant. I have formed you. You're my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. The Bible is full of hundreds. It's just replete with messages how God is will not fully cast away the nation of Israel. He will preserve them, and he will also punish them for their re- rejection of Christ, for their rejection of God. It's not that God won't punish Israel. It's not that every Jewish person is going to be saved. It's quite the opposite. Most of them are not saved right now. However, God will preserve that nation, not based off their righteousness, but based off God's grace alone. However, another major theme in this book, it's very important to go over this, the nation of Israel will not take part in the blessings and promises of God apart from genuine repentance. And so not only the name of Zechariah, but his fate, what happened to Zechariah is very instructive to us, okay? The nation of Israel, the, the, the individuals will not take part in the national blessing of Israel in the coming millennial kingdom apart from genuine repentance. You, you got to understand, Zechariah was a faithful preacher, and Jesus reveals to us he became a martyr. Jesus looked over Jerusalem. He cried over Jerusalem. He wanted them to repent and believe in him. But he said, upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, the first martyr, who was a good shepherd, <laughs> to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Jesus called Jerusalem the city the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. Ezekiel called Jerusalem the bloody city, guilty of murder. And Isaiah called her the harlot city. And so the name of Zechariah, Yahweh remembers, and his fate that he he was martyred. The prophecies in the book of Zechariah reveal God's plan to turn the nation of Israel back to him at the second coming of Christ, when they look on the one they've pierced, Jesus, then Jerusalem, the city of blood, the murderous city, will be called the faithful city once more, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 3. And the harlot city who forsook God, who committed adultery against God, will once again be called, or for the first time ever be called, the city of righteousness. So that's a little bit about Zechariah. His name means Yahweh remembers he was a uh, prophet and most likely a priest at some point in his life as well. He began his ministry in 520 BC. The bulk of his work took place in the first two years, 520 to 518 BC. And we don't know the exact length of his ministry, but most scholars and commentators estimate it was somewhere around 50 years. The latter portion of the book was probably done around like 470 or 480 BC. If you follow my channel, I don't claim to be a historian. I don't claim to be some great theologian. The dates are estimates. But roughly, this book was written roughly 500 years before Christ was born, which is amazing because now as we move on to the main themes, we're first going to talk about my favorite theme of all scripture, Jesus. You see, this book was written 500 years before Christ was born. Pre-incarnate Christ's uh, prophecies about Christ, foreshadowings about Christ, they are my lifeblood. I use them in evangelism. They encourage my heart. They are how I came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I absolutely love things written about Jesus before he was born. I regularly preach to anyone who will listen, whether it's on this channel or the street corners of the world, that Jesus is the only expected person in human history. I mean, that's 
you know, I'm a rational man. I want something to be different and, and radical about what I believe. I want it to be different from all the other gods of the world. Jesus is the only expected person in all of human history. Jesus himself said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now, he was talking about his crucifixion, but I think there's a wonderful application. All we have to do as Christians is lift Jesus up. He will draw all men to himself. And how do we lift him up? We lift him up using his word. I mean, it's just very straightforward. The the job of a preacher or a teacher is very straightforward. Lift up Christ through the faithful teaching of his word. And the book of Zechariah lifts up Christ. Oh, I had so much fun putting together these verses and putting together these slides. This might seem a bit mysterious to you. What I'm about to do might seem a little confusing to you. I'm going to show you all the foreshadowings and prophecies of Christ in the book of Zechariah, or at least most of them, without fully explaining them to you. Remember, this is an introduction. I don't want to give away everything. I just want to whet your appetite. I want to get you excited as we begin to dig in verse by verse and see all of these prophecies about Christ written 500 years before he was born. And so, Zechariah lifts up Christ, and he describes him in order as a man riding on a red horse in the first vision. We then see a pre-incarnate Christ as the angel of the Lord interceding and pleading for the nation of Israel. We see Jesus as the final craftsman, uh, some might even say carpenter, that Hebrew word means, who will terrify those nations who oppress Israel. We see Jesus as the Lord of hosts, the Son, sent by the Lord of hosts, the Father. That might be the most mysterious one. Somehow the Lord of hosts is commanded by someone in Scripture. That makes no sense without the Trinity, because who could command the Lord of hosts? Well, it makes perfect sense with the Trinity. The Lord of hosts, the Father, sends the Lord of hosts, the Son. And I can't wait to go over that with you. We see Jesus lifted up as the one who will remove the filth, iniquity, and sin from the nation of Israel and clothe them with festal robes of righteousness, just like the prodigal son father. You remember that story Jesus told where the prodigal son's father, he ran out to him and he put on a gorgeous robe around his son. That's what Jesus is going to do to the nation of Israel, and Zechariah describes it. We see Zechariah describe Jesus as the servant and branch of the Lord. Just like Haggai did in the final Haggai message, chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus is the coming servant, Ebed Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh, and the branch of the Lord. He's the root and offspring of David, right? He's the branch. He said, I am the true vine, right? We see Jesus explained as the foundation stone having seven eyes engraved with a beautiful inscription, And then we see him as the coming king priest who will sit and rule on his throne in the millennial temple. And you might be saying to yourself, wow, this is a lot of Jesus. This is so clear. This must be talking about Jesus. My friends, those were the vague ones. (laughs) Those were the vague foreshadowings. Here, as we just ascend this Acropolis, as we just ascend this mountain, there are four specific prophecies in the latter portion of Zechariah that these four prophecies, I cannot wait months from now, maybe years from now, to finally get here and teach you on these. These are incredible. In Zechariah chapter 9, we see Jesus as the 
the king riding humbly on a donkey. He then brings peace to the world. We see him in Zechariah 11 as a good shepherd sold for 30 shekels of silver. And finally, in Zechariah 12, as the one they have pierced, as the Lord Yahweh, who they have pierced, Jesus. And finally, and I, and I have to be very honest with you guys, this is the verse I am most excited to do a video about. I cannot wait to get here. It is the very last, extremely clear prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. When I finally get here, I plan to do a video tying all four of these prophecies into one. He, we see him as the shepherd that was struck by the sword of the Lord's wrath for the sins of his people. You can't make this stuff up. The book of Zechariah lifts up Christ. The book of Zechariah closes with Jesus being portrayed as the king over all the earth. Jesus is the focal point of all scripture. The testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19.10. We need to understand the Bible is first and foremost a book that reveals to human beings who their creator is. That is to say, the Bible tells you who God is. That is why the Bible is chiefly about Jesus, because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Long before Christ was born, the prophets wrote, a child would be born who is Almighty God, that the Messiah is coming. All the prophets wrote about him. Zechariah reveals Christ, reveals Jesus, reveals the Messiah in stunning detail. It's, it's just wonderful. It's just amazing. And so it's, it's hard for me to come down from the emotional high of talking about Jesus that much. There are other themes. They're all connected to Jesus, but there are other themes. And of course, the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, is a major theme in the book of Zechariah. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your fathers to the land which I will show you. The land of Israel was gifted. The land of Israel was gifted by God to the patriarch Abraham in the verse above, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. This land is originally called Canaan, and the Lord described this land as the land from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. Several times in the book of Genesis, the Lord promises to give this land to Abraham and his descendants as an eternal possession. This is an eternal decree of God. God is sovereign over the nations. He gives to the nations their inheritance. Scripture is clear. I'm not a political pundit. I'm not here to make political talking notes. The Bible is the title deed to the land of Israel, to the Jewish people. God has all authority, and he has deeded over that land by eternal decree to the Jewish people. When they are scattered and sent away from their land, it is in judgment for rejection of God. When they are regathered, it is by the grace of God, based on his promise to Abraham given in Genesis chapter 12. It is amazing. I mean, uh, the Lord reiterates this promise to Abraham's sons, both Isaac in Genesis 26, and then Jacob, who is later given the name Israel, Jacob, who is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, God promises that their people, their descendants, in Isaac your seed will be called, right, talking of Christ, and then through Jacob, the nation of Israel, inherits the promised land. This is the land of Canaan, the promised land, Israel. Some people call it the land of Palestine, right? And so, 
I'm not a historian. I'm not a, a you know, I'm not going to pull up a million maps or try and confuse you guys with exact coordinates or anything like that. But I do think it's very profitable for the study of Book of Zechariah just to get a 30,000-foot view of the land and see how it all points to Christ. So we have the land of Israel, right? All the land of Israel. It's about the size of New Jersey, right? It's incredible. All the eyes of the world are on this land right now. And so it's just a, a marvelous time to study the book of Zechariah. And so the land of Israel, at least biblically, it was uh, separated between the northern kingdom of Israel, containing the 12 tribes, and the land of Judah. They, they split. There was sort of a civil war, which I won't go into now. But the land of Judah is the southern kingdom. So many times in the book of Zechariah, they'll reference the land of Judah. And so Joshua chapter 15 shows us, uh, and Micah uh, verse 5 show us, some of the most important places in the land of Judah. So right here, if you're watching on the screen, the land of Judah contains Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, written hundreds of years before Christ was born. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, talks about Bethlehem Ephrathah of the clans of Judah. It says, from you, one will go forth to be ruler in Israel. The ruler in Israel is coming from the land of Judah, which includes like Beersheba and Hebron and different arid lands and farming communities, right? But within Bethlehem, this little town of in the land of Judah, the ruler in Israel. And his going forth are from everlasting, from ancient days. The ancient, eternal, everlasting ruler will come forth from Bethlehem. Christ was born in Bethlehem. And most important to the book of Zechariah, Jerusalem is in the land of Judah. So you have the land of Israel, all of Israel. Then you have the southern region, the land of Judah, and within Judah, you have Jerusalem. Joshua chapter 15, verse 8, shows us that the tribe of Judah um, uh, inherited, when, when Jacob had 12 sons, he gave each son an inheritance in the land of Israel. That was by God's decree. And so Judah inherited Jerusalem. We know our Lord is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So it's very fitting that Judah, uh, within the land of Judah, and, and that tribe's inheritance in, encompassed Bethlehem, where Christ was born, and Jerusalem, where Christ died, where Christ ascended to heaven, and where Christ is coming back. And so the, so that's the land of Israel, and that's the southern region of Judah. Now, and we want to camp here for a while. This is incredibly important to the book of Zechariah, and really to God's entire redemptive plan, the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is mentioned over 40 times. I think it's about 43 times. 40 times in the book of Zechariah, more than the land of Israel, more than any other word, really, the city of Jerusalem is mentioned over 40 times in the book of Zechariah. And so I just want to give you a brief history of that city. The first time we hear about Jerusalem in the Bible is all the way back in Genesis chapter 14. It's during Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which was Jerusalem. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 8, we see Melchizedek uh, brought out bread and wine, and he blessed Abraham, okay? So Melchizedek had a higher position than Abraham because the lesser Abraham was blessed by the greater Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek was king of Salem. Now, everything we know about Melchizedek is actually very mysterious. We know there's only a few verses in the entire Bible about him, okay? But we know he was a king of Jerusalem and priest of the Most High God. And so with that, it's very clear Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of the coming Lord Jesus Christ, who will be both a king in Jerusalem and a 
priest. Okay, that's why Psalm 110 says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, long after the law and the Levitical priesthood, God promised another priest is coming, an eternal priest, a priest that offers one sacrifice for all, a priest that doesn't die at the end of his life, and then I need a new priest, an eternal priest and an eternal king is coming. Okay, so very important. Genesis chapter 14, way before the nation of Israel, way before the law, we see God has an entire theocracy in Jerusalem with a king ruling over Jerusalem who is also a priest. That is very important as we study Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 6, as we'll do later on. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, just to give you a historical background of Jerusalem, it, it reveals that David captured what he called the Fortress of Zion. Zion's a very important word. It's sometimes used interchangeably with Jerusalem. David captured the Fortress of Zion. He called it the City of David. He captured it from the Jebusites. Jesus called Jerusalem the city of the great king. We can't overemphasize the importance of Jerusalem in the plan of God, okay? Jerusalem is the city where outside the gate our Lord was crucified. It is the city where on the Mount of Olives he ascended back to the right hand of, of, of the Father. The city plays a prominent role in the tribulation. I mean, the Antichrist will be worshipped from Jerusalem, right? From the temple, the false temple in Jerusalem. It's the city that Jesus one day returns to, Zechariah reveals, on that day his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, and it's the city from which Christ will rule from during his millennial kingdom. And when we get into the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, there's a new Jerusalem. So God's entire redemptive plan runs through the city of Jerusalem. In fact, in Psalm chapter uh, 110, Jesus used the 110th Psalm to prove his own divinity. He actually quoted Psalm 110, and it actually says in that uh, Psalm, in verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. There's a king, there's a king with a scepter of authority that the Lord will stretch forth from Zion, from Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So I just want to go over Zion a little bit, okay? The, the title Zion is often used interchangeably with Jerusalem. But when the, so, so if you say Zion and Jerusalem, you could be saying the same thing. When the term Zion is used in reference to a mountain, right? Zion or Mount Zion or the mountain of Zion or my holy mountain, it's usually referring to what is commonly understood as the Temple Mount, okay? Uh, this is within Israel, within the land of Judah, within the city of Jerusalem, and atop Mount Zion. This is what's typically referred to as the Temple Mount. And you need to understand, this is the hottest piece of real estate on planet Earth. The fact that all the eyes of the world are on Israel or on Jerusalem or on the Temple Mount right now are absolutely fascinating to me. It doesn't mean the end of the world's coming tomorrow, but I also believe Christians shouldn't stick their head in the sand. We should enjoy these prophecies and look for our Lord to come back. And he did give us signs in Matthew 24, okay? So the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, right? And just so you understand, Mount Zion is also near Mount Moriah. We'll talk about that in a second. The exact geographical location is difficult to pinpoint, but we need to understand the Temple Mount 
is the holiest site in Judaism. It is the third holiness in Islam after Mecca and Medina, and it's revered by Christians. The Temple Mount is the holiest site in the world. The Temple Mount is the hottest piece of real estate on planet Earth, okay? And it breaks my heart if all the religions in the world and all the powerful governments in the world would stop vying for power and authority and and religious uh, sway in the world by trying to conquer Jerusalem, as many have done, you know, historically, and trying to just gain political power there, if all the religions of the world, specifically Islam and Judaism, would just go back to what happened on this mountain, in this mountain region, it would turn everyone to Christ. You see, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham takes his son, the one he loves, Isaac, and he goes to the land of Moriah, and on a mountain, Moriah is in Jerusalem. He sort of mock offers, or almost mock executes Isaac. And the Lord stays his hand and says, you don't have to sacrifice your son. And it was a foreshadowing that the father would send his son to die for the sins of all those who would ever believe. You see, on that mountain, that's where Solomon, when I say on that mountain, Mount Moriah and Mount Zion, some commentators, some theologians claim it is the exact same mountain. Others claim it is very close. I'm talking about the region where the Temple Mount is built. I'm not saying it's the exact, uh, it is my opinion that it is the exact mountain. However, there's some difference of opinions there. I can't be dogmatic about it. And so this location, the, the land of Mount Moriah, where Abraham almost sacrificed his son in a wonderful uh, foreshadowing of what Christ would do on the cross in his, you know, dying in the place of sinners, Solomon then chose this location to build the first temple, and the Babylonians destroyed that. We discussed that. Well, now, after the Babylonian captivity, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah are now encouraging the people to rebuild the second temple under Zerubbabel, the governor in Judah, and this will ultimately be completed. They will complete the second temple in 516 B.C., This is what I'm essentially trying to get at here. Psalm 132 says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. If you remember from our Haggai series, the temple represents God's house where he will dwell dwell. God has put in his name in Zion. He's he's sending his son back to Zion. He will rule from Zion in the millennial temple. Micah chapter 4 says, in that day, many nations are going to say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to this area that you're looking at on the screen right now, to the house, the temple of the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. He's going to teach us his ways. We're going to walk in his paths. This is talking about the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, where peace and righteousness flow like a waterfall on earth. But then it says, for from Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In Psalm chapter 2, the nations rage, and they want to cast off the authority and the law of God. And God says, too bad, I have all authority on heaven and earth, and I have installed my king, the Son of God. Psalm chapter 2, the Son of God is also king, and God has installed him as the sovereign king over all nations upon Zion, my holy mountain. So, so, so important. Now, I know that might be a little confusing, so let's just review really quick. So to review, we have the entire land of Israel given by God to Abraham. Contained within Israel is the southern region of Judah. Contained within Judah are the cities of Bethlehem, where Christ was born, and Jerusalem, where he was crucified, 
And within Jerusalem is the Temple Mount, or Mount Zion, where the Lord will one day return to reign as king from the Davidic throne, from the Millennial Temple in Jerusalem. Whew, I know that's a lot of information. Bear with me. Study the Word of God. I promise there's a blessing here, because as you're going to see, all the main themes, Jesus obviously points to Jesus, Israel, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, the entire plan of God, all centers around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And so we've described who Zechariah is, his name, Yahweh remembers that he was a martyr, his ministry. We've described the main themes of the book. Now I just want to give you an outline of the book, just a brief outline of the book, and then we will discuss why I'm doing this right now, sort of the dedication. The first section of the book, and remember, many commentators break them up into these sections. I agree with them, but I've altered them a little bit. Uh, The first section of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, is a call to return, a call from God for the nation of Israel to turn back to him. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now you have to understand, Zechariah in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament link the second coming of Christ and the restoration of Israel. The second coming of the Messiah and the restoration of Israel as a nation, right? A national repentance, a national revival. The second coming of Christ and the restoration of Israel, they are completely intertwined. Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved. All the genuine children of God that are a part of the nation of Israel, not every Jewish person. Zechariah tells us it's about one-third of the nation at the time of the tribulation, but all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the Deliverer, Jesus Christ, will come from Zion, that mountain we described. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, from the nation of Israel. So chapters 1, verse 1 to 6, is a call to return. And then the book prophesies all the way into the future. We do see the nation of Israel return on the day they look at the one they pierced. Section 2 is massive. Chapter 1, verse 7, all the way to chapter 6, verse 15. These are the visions of Zechariah, and it's incredible. He receives eight visions, each more detailed than the last. (laughs) Eight visions in a single night. I mean, I just can't imagine Zechariah getting up the next day. I mean, there's just so much information. He doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't have an ability other than the the Lord's gracious spirit. He must have been so excited. But Zechariah receives eight visions in a single night. And if I was to give you sort of a theme of these eight visions, I would use Zechariah chapter 1, verse 13. The angel asked the Lord about Jerusalem, about uh, Israel, and saying, when will you, you know, have mercy on them? And the Lord speaks to him gracious words and comforting words. The visions are meant to comfort the children of God in Israel and remind them that Yahweh remembers them, as well as encourage them to repent and believe, right? And the second section of Zechariah, um, these visions comfort them because they remind them that that the Lord will restore them from captivity, judge their enemies, and provide a period of blessing and prosperity when the Messiah comes. Now, the third section is sort of a historical interlude, okay? And the people, uh, basically, I'll read this verse from Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5. The people ask the Lord about fasting and religious activity. They're like, should we still fast? Should we still mourn? Things seem to be going good. 
And the Lord says to the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted, when, when you mourned in the fifth and the seven months, these seven years, was it actually for me that you fasted? You see, he rebukes their pharisaical outward form of religion. They don't really have a true heart of worship, right? That's always been the Jewish people's problem. He then admonishes the nation to hear the words which he has spoken in the past through the former prophets. You see, when we offer God religious activity, many times in Scripture, he just says, no, 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 I want your heart. Hear the word. Revival begins with the fear of the Lord and the word of God. And so in this section, chapter 7 and, uh, and chapter 8, he reminds them that their judgment and their scattering to Babylon and the conquest of Babylon against them, that came to them because they rejected God's word. It says they made their hearts hard. They refused to hear them. And so it says the Lord scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they've not known. Thus the land is desolate behind them so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. And so this is this is what section three is about. He's reminding them it's about turning back to God and listening to his words. It's not just about fasting or religious activity. Section three, uh, uh, historical interlude continued. This is part B of section three. So what I just showed you was chapter seven. It was fairly negative when they asked the question about fasting and mourning and religious activity. Then in chapter 8, it becomes very positive. The Lord reminds them, like, yes, I scattered you because you rejected me. You made your hearts hard. You refused to listen to me. But nevertheless, the Lord of hosts will not forget them. He says, old men and old women, they're going to again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. He's basically saying, uh, people are going to live here again. The streets are going to be full. He says, just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, I will save you so you become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. He then tells them, these fasts that you're holding in the fourth and the fifth and the seventh month and your mourning and all that sadness, they're going to become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. I believe that'll be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom of Christ. He says uh, in Mark chapter 2, I just find this tie-in so beautiful. Uh, the Pharisees asked, you know, Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with him, can the attendants really fast? Can you cry and mourn when the bridegroom is right here? He said, when the bridegroom is here, they can't fast. And so Zechariah 7, you know, you see the people asking, should we fast? Should we mourn? And the Lord rebukes them and says, I scattered you because you rejected my word. But then in Zechariah 8, he says, there's a time coming where I'm going to bless you. I'm going to restore you. And then you won't be fasting anymore. You'll be feasting and you'll be cheerful. And why will that be the case? Jesus reveals that in Mark chapter 2. The bridegroom will finally come back. The bridegroom will be there. And, and we cannot fast or be sad in the presence of Jesus. That would dishonor him, right? Oh, I love it. So I, I have a lot of fun doing this, just to, just to explain. I have so much fun doing this. <laughs> Section 4, chapter 9 uh, through chapter 11. This is the first burden or oracle from the Lord. This is a weighty message. There are two burdens that finish out the book of Zechariah that bring us from chapter 9 all the way through to the end of chapter 14, to the end of the book. And they are described as two burdens or oracles. They're weighty messages from God. Zechariah 9 begins with the burden of the word of the Lord. 
And these are very heavy uh, concepts. Just to give you an overview, it speaks of the judgment of Israel's enemies. It speaks of the coming king of Jerusalem who will deliver Israel from Gentile rule. It speaks of the rejection of the true shepherd at his first coming when he sold for 30 shekels of silver. And it speaks of the acceptance of the foolish shepherd, also known as the Antichrist. There's a, a lot of eschatology in the book of Zechariah. Section 5, this is the fifth and final section, is chapter 12 all the way through to the end of the book, chapter 14, uh, verse 21. It's the burden concerning Israel, the burden, the weighty message of the Lord concerning Israel. From chapter 12 all the way through to the end of chapter 14, to the end of the book, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And to summarize these great chapters, it's basically how the world ends. I mean, it talks about the national deliverance of Israel from all of the nations that will seek to annihilate her. I mean, it's talking about the Battle of Armageddon, the War of Gog and Magog, the nations coming against Jerusalem and, and seeking to, just like Hitler, have that final solution for the Jews, right? So there's a national physical salvation for the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ. He literally defends them. Then it talks about the spiritual salvation, cleansing, and revival for the remnant of Jewish people when they look on the one whom they have pierced. Beautiful. There's a fountain of cleansing, just spiritually washing the nation of Israel from millennia of sin and rejection of Christ. Finally, we hear about the conquest, victory, and millennial reign of the coming Messiah at his second coming in chapter 14. And the book sort of ends, one of the last verses, or, or middle to last verses in the book, it ends with Jesus being king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. So you see, Zechariah starts all the way in the past with Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah rebuilding the temple, brings us all the way through to the future, the first coming of Christ where he's rejected, and into the end times, the acceptance of the Antichrist, the destruction of the nations, and finally, the acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ by the nation of Israel at their second coming. It's just jam-packed with so much exciting information. And so we've described Zechariah, we've discussed the main themes of the book, I've tried to give you just a basic outline of the book. Now I'm going to get on a personal note, I'm still going to give you some scripture as I always do. Everything I do, I try and back up you know, why I'm doing what I do with a, a scriptural reason. But I want to discuss why I'm doing this teaching series now. There was an event that was sort of providential in my life, I find it really fascinating, and for the glory of God, I'd like to share it uh, with you. And this is essentially going to be a dedication. Uh, before I share that story, I just want to explain. You know, Romans chapter 10, Paul is talking about the Jewish people, and he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And so first and foremost, everything I do is dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved me and washed me from my sins in his own blood. But Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus loves the Jewish people. And so, you know, everything I do, I don't want it to please men. I want it to please God. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, I'm not seeking the favor of men. I'm striving to please God. It's God who will judge me on judgment day. I want to please him. However, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 33, Paul says, I also want to please all men. I'm not seeking to offend people. We want to love God first and love people second. Paul said, I'm not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they might be saved. So my, my genuine motivation for this is to please the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And since Israel is the apple of his eye, I, I do. I have a genuine desire for the Jewish people. Um, uh, if you understand, I'm, I've got a little bit of Jewish blood. I'm Jewish on my mother's side. My salvation experience was extremely Jewish. I, I could not believe Jesus was God. I read all the prophecies that I've been so excited to tell you about today. If you've listened this far, you have an understanding. I love prophecies of Jesus. I still didn't believe in Jesus. I broke down and asked God for faith, and he gave it to me, right? And so I, I have, a, you know, I even flew to Israel while trying to get saved and was baptized in the Jordan. You know, I, I've got an interesting story that sort of connects my heart to the land of Israel when I when I flew there in my, my misguided zeal to get baptized before I was saved. And I also have uh, this desire for the Jewish people because I love the prophecies of their coming Messiah that— the Lord Jesus himself used to convince people that he was the Messiah, God, and King. And so I have a genuine desire for the Jewish people. My hope is this work, both the commentary I'm writing on Zechariah, which you can get on foolishministries.com, as well as these teachings, by, by the grace of God, I want them to be used to turn Israel back to their Messiah. I also want these to be ser to serve the Christian community, obviously, in clearing up any misunderstanding surrounding God's promises to the nation of Israel. Now, this is where I'll get into the story a little bit. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, I, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That verse is going to make a little more sense in a minute. He's talking about the nation of Israel. Those who bless Israel, God will bless. So I'm not doing this just to curry some divine favor with the Lord. You'll understand that verse more in a second. I, I wrote out this following statement because if I get anything wrong in this statement, I might offend people and I might fall into sin against people. So forgive me. if I'm going to read it a little bit robotically, okay? Recently, after finishing a series on Haggai, I was hard-pressed between a decision to move on to Zechariah or possibly teach through a different topic in the New Testament unrelated to Israel. So I, I very often get distracted. I was very excited about reading uh, 2 Peter and Jude regarding uh, false teachers, and I thought I should write a little booklet and do a teaching series on that. And so I was just, I, I spent literally just a few days, it might have been three days, we'll say about a week to be safe, but I was, I was deep in prayer. I was asking for the Lord to give me direction and guidance. I was seeking counsel from godly men that I know on what he wanted me to teach. And, and as I was praying and I was saying, Lord, get, you, know, get, you know, not give me a sign, but just give me direction, give me clarity, something awful happened. D during this time period, you're all aware of it, or at least you should be. On October 7, 2023, Hamas, an Islamic terrorist organization in the Gaza Strip, launched a brutal and unprovoked attack on the nation of Israel. This proved to be the bloodiest single day for the Jews since the Holocaust with estimates, this is all fairly new, this is only a few weeks ago, of 1,400 people murdered, including many women and children. It's, it's extremely sad. The, I've seen a lot of the videos and images. It's extremely sad what's happening. Naturally, with, with that Jewish salvation experience and flying to the land of Israel and all that, I, I had a strong urge to do something to help and support the Jewish people. In my misguided zeal, I probably put together a dozen or more different plans to support them. I thought about making a just a video on what's going on during the war, just a video breaking down Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I thought about doing different individual videos, but after much prayer, it just became clear to me the best thing I can do for the Jewish people 
is to help them understand who their Messiah is. It's to teach through the book of Zechariah verse by verse and explain to them all of God's wonderful promises for them, his warnings for them, his admonitions that they repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. My genuine desire for this series through Zechariah is to reach reach the hearts of the Jewish people and equip Christians to evangelize them, equip Christians to evangelize Jews. And if a Christian is equipped to evangelize Jewish people, he's equipped to evangelize anyone, anyone, okay? Uh, Prophecies about Christ, prophecies about Israel that prove the veracity of Scripture. I mean, I don't think there's anybody more complicated to evangelize to than a Jewish person. They really understand their Old Testament. They really reject the Messiah, and they will they will needle you on it a bit. I've only had the privilege of talking to several of them since coming to faith myself, but that's my heart's desire with this series, okay? And so, like, like I said, in Genesis chapter 12, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so, 1,400 people killed, the worst day for Jewish people since the Holocaust, the nation's currently at war right now. And so I know a lot of people are extremely interested in what's going on there. And so I'm just going to finish with this slide. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 17, the Lord speaking about Israel and Jerusalem and Zion, he promises them after the time of Jacob's trouble, after the tribulation, I will restore you to health and I will heal you of your wounds because they've called you an outcast saying, it's Zion, no one cares for her. There are many people that sort of echo that today, that say God has no promises for the nation of Israel, for Jerusalem, for Zion, that we can't take the the book of uh, Revelation literally and futuristically. And so, you know, you need to understand at the time of this writing, the nation of Israel is at war. Many people are curious about the myriad of prophecies in Scripture concerning Israel and Jerusalem and Zion and, and how this might be related to the end times. That's a really common question right now. Some people are alarmists, claiming that this is proof the end of days is immediately upon us. That's not true. Uh, it could be true, but it's not definitely true. Other groups in Christianity, and I believe these are people who genuinely love the Lord but are mis- you know, misunderstanding the Bible— they claim that the church has replaced Israel, and God has no more promises related to the, to the Jewish people. And so I am I, opposed to that. I think that is unbiblical. I, I think it dishonors Scripture. And so I, you know, I, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ who hold that opinion, and I would never separate over that opinion. However, you know, I hope with this series, by the grace of God, to remove any unnecessary stumbling blocks that may keep the Jewish people from coming to Christ— Christ is a stumbling block. Christ is offensive. It's offensive to the human race that we deserve to go to hell, that we've violated the law of God, that we justly deserve a lake of fire, and that Christ had to die in order to redeem us from that fate. That's that's offensive enough. On top of that, I don't want to tell the Jewish people that all the promises of God are canceled for them. That adds a stumbling block on top of the stumbling block of Christ, and I really believe it is an unnecessary stumbling block. So that's the goal of this series. Out of my love for the Jewish people, I want to uh, hold those oracles of God that he has given to Israel and and explain them properly. And I want to prevent the church from falling into the error that Paul warned about. In Romans chapter 11, verse 18, he said, do not boast against the branches. Don't boast against the Jewish people. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. The, The nation of Israel largely rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they do not turn to him, they will not be saved. But the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. God has an irrevocable plan for the nation of Israel, for the land of Jerusalem, for Mount Zion, 
and Zechariah reveals it in stunning detail. And so my 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 great desire is to remove every stumbling block out of the way of the people of God. I really hope you enjoy this series. Please email me if you have any questions. God bless you guys.